Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This is our second episode this week. Uh, our bumper episode split into two because we've had so many emails, as explained on Monday. And you can listen out of order. If you haven't listened to Monday's episode, you can listen to this one first. It's not like, you know, some sort of drama series where you've got to, it's got to be linear. You can uh, listen to this one first, but to do go back and listen to Monday's. Uh, thank you again for all the emails. And we're just going to go through uh, the remaining ones. And uh, we'll start with Tony. Tony says, I'm enjoying the podcast as always. Long may it continue. Thank you, Tony. All the career experts say to do what you love. So I'm writing to ask if you can advise where to look in order to apply for careers in snooker. Up until now, I've worked as a project manager for big companies, and I'd like to think there are suitable roles in the game. Any steer you could give me would be great, thanks. Well, let's deal with that first. Um, Project manager for big companies, I'll express my ignorance. I don't entirely know what that means, but... um, what sort of work are you looking to do, I suppose? Because there's lots of different, you know, avenues in, through, through event management or, or sort of sponsorship, marketing, media, you know, all sorts of things, promotion. So maybe think about specifically the area that interests you. Um, that would be a, the sort of starting point and then consider, okay, how do I sort of get there? I mean, obviously there's World Snooker Tour, but there's lots of other, you know, sort of, people involved, companies involved with the sport, sponsorship and so on. So I guess what I'm saying is maybe start by thinking what specifically you want to do and then look for a way in through that. Tony says, while I'm here, I find it frustrating it's no longer possible to predict who might win a tournament based on form with so many unexpected winners this season alone. I won't list them for fear of offending anyone. Does this reflect on there being too many players in the pot, do you think? My concern for the game is that there's always been clearly, clearly dominant figure and supporting cast in each era. Reardon, Davies, Hendry O'Sullivan. But there's no obvious successor to the throne whenever Ronnie decides to retire, hopefully a long time from now. That is apart from Ozowski, but he hasn't shown yet if he can, tr- can translate his raw talent into big wins. Well, on that, I actually... I'm going to slightly disagree with you. I do understand the appeal of a dominant figure because they're the one to be shot at. And it's certainly true that snooker has sort of been sustained through various eras with, you know, the one big figure... You know, if he doesn't wear the crown, who will? But I actually thought last week in Wolverhampton that the Players' Championship 
I'm not saying it's refreshing that some of the bigger names weren't there. We'd have liked them there. But actually, what it proved was, you know, you're only a star if you're in the spotlight. And the fact is, other players had the chance to be stars because the sort of the big hitters were not monopolising that main table. We often, at the Home Nations, I understand it, on Eurosport, get criticised for showing the same players. Quite a few of those players were not in this tournament. So <laughs> it was an opportunity to watch other players. And the final was absolutely rocking. I mean, if it had gone close, that would have been one of the great atmospheres of the season, I think. The crowd there in Wolverhampton really got behind the tournament of the Aldersley Leisure Centre in the end, and it was a, a great atmosphere for, for Sean Murphy's win. By the way, I believe I did say on Monday's podcast that um, I said Judd Trump, I think, had lost to Luca Priscilla, because he lost to Ali Carter in that uh, dramatic deciding frame. So just to... Uh, you know, any, anyone who's, who's sort of uh, unsubscribed from the podcast in disgust, I apologise, but that's, that's what I said, but, uh, you know, I, I corrected it. Finally, from Tony, he says, last point, I was watching the Welsh Open and couldn't believe how drab the atmosphere was. Is, is it really wise to have players rolling on at 10 o'clock, PM, that is, with only a trickle of sleepy people left in the crowd? I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Well, this, yes, when he says he, he doesn't mean the whole tournament, he means those late night sessions. The problem is the 7 o'clock match, if it's a long match, obviously you are going to go on late. Mark Selby, uh, play one of his matches. It was actually a really good match. I forget who it was against now. Um, it'll come to me. But it was a really good match, but it went on late. Um, and that wasn't his fault. Um, it finished, well, it's gone midnight, but, you know, it started after 10 o'clock. And it's difficult, I think, because you're hanging around all day to play. Um, but you're at the mercy of that 7 o'clock match. I mean, the the way around it is to start slightly earlier in the evening, but then you've got to start earlier in the day. So, you know, it's... it's How do you sort of... Um, CGR Wee, that was it from China. CGR Wee. 4-3, of course, it went. I was commentating. But anyway, um, yeah, that, that's the issue, really. If, if you um, if you start earlier in the evening, you have to start earlier in the, in the morning. So you're just hoping that matches are not going to be too late. It, it is late, and I, I think that... Unfortunately, I mean, Selby, I think, was on that slot every every match of the tournament. So, it's not ideal, but, um, you know, well, what can you do, I suppose? Uh, Kerry Richards, now, Kerry did write in earlier, uh, well, we read out, actually, their third email, but this is this was the first one. I was watching the first semi-final of the Welsh Open earlier between Robert Milkins and Tianpeng Fei. I always enjoyed Darren Morgan's annual stint as a summariser for BBC Wales at this tournament. However, it suddenly dawned on me he refers to the white as a cube as the cue ball. I've never really thought about it before, but other than John Virgo and his where's the cue ball going, I get the feeling most in the media refer to it as the white, but not the white ball. Is that fair? What's your preference? Well, this is, this is proper niche stuff, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Without looking back, I, I'm pretty sure I would normally say the cue ball because people, I think, understand you know, what that is. And that's what it's called, after all. Um, so... I think, if you, I mean, I'm not sure studies have been made of this, but if you go back and listen to my commentaries, I'm pretty sure I call it the cue ball, but I'm sure I call it the white as well. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a personal preference. And Kerry's second email, like buses, I have an email for months, then send two within an hour. I imagine this is highly unlikely, but has there ever been a situation in a professional match where, for whatever reason, a break in play due to one of the players leaving the arena may be, the player at the table has mistakenly gone for a red, when they're on a colour or vice versa. Yeah, this has happened. It happened um, in lockdown um, with Jack Lazowski, actually, who seemed to be sort of the new Fergal O'Brien in this podcast. We talk about Jack a lot, but he potted two reds in a row, and it wasn't anything to do with leaving the arena. Well, this was a thing. Here, okay, Sean Murphy saying lapsing concentration doesn't exist. Jack potted two reds in a row because he was obviously 
thinking about something ahead in the break and forgot he potted, potted a red, uh, so didn't go for a colour. This was at the World Grand Prix in Milton Keynes during lockdown. I think he got to the final ultimately, so all, all was well in the end. Well, not the end of the final, but anyway, he got over it. But yeah, he was, um, he was, uh, he potted two reds in a row, and that's a fact. Uh, Peter Ebden, I think, did it as well, although he, he is colour blind, so that might be, uh, might be part of that. Uh, Lee Wall, I was wondering if your involvement with the magazine has now ceased. This is snooker scene, presumably. I believe you were going to have a monthly column under Nick Metcalf's editorship, but I do not think you've featured since Nick's abrupt departure. Well, here's what happened, OK? I'm not involved with the magazine anymore. Um, when Clive Everton announced he was going to retire, I thought that was a good time for me also to step away after 23 years. Um, new era, new people, you know, new Britain, all of that. <laughs> um, and... I very much enjoy writing my Eurosport column every Monday. You can read that on the Eurosport website. Don't want to miss week on Sean Murphy, but I thought it was time to move on. The magazine was then sort of suddenly revived. Nick, who I greatly respect, um, had certain plans for it, which I supported, and he asked me to write a column, which I did. Um, it's not for me to go into the the ins and outs of what what happened next, but the fact is he, he was no, he's no longer editor, and I decided that that was a good time to uh, to end my involvement as well. I wish them well, but I'm not actually writing for Snooker Scene anymore. Uh, Rob Dunn, he says, Hi Dave, just a quick question with regards to yours and others' commentary duties. I'm curious as to what events you and the others, other commentators actually attend when you're working for Eurosport. You said last week about the cost of things. I'm guessing it comes down to money as to why it's better from a Eurosport point of view to have you doing your duties from a permanent studio somewhere rather than set up booths and transport you all over the country and sometimes around the world. So it may sound like a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I'm guessing you would rather be at a venue working as you'll get a much better feel for the event when you're, in, when you're around all the players and your Eurosport colleagues. Thanks and keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Rob. Well, yes, I mean, put it this way, that Eurosport are covering the Six Reds World Championship in Bangkok next week in Thailand. We will not be in Thailand. Um, that won't surprise you, no, because it just costs a lot of money when there are perfectly good facilities elsewhere. And as I said on previous podcasts, Eurosport get this a lot, but this happens on a lot of channels in a lot of sports. Quite a lot of BBC sport is done off tube. Quite a lot of Sky stuff is done off tube. It's not just Eurosport by any means. Um, but uh, it is better, I think, to be at the event, yes, because, for example, I was in Wolverhampton for ITV for the Players' Championship. And you can watch the player in the chair. That's always fascinating. Certainly like Ali Carter in a final, just watching his reactions. And, 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 you know, you can learn a lot from that. And as you say, if you're at the event, you pick up stuff backstage. You know, you talk to people. You get a sense of what's happening. It's harder to do that um, when you're remote. But, but the other thing worth saying is when you're actually commentating, you're always commentating 99% off the monitor rather than watching the arena. You're watching what the viewers are watching. Um... And, and just on commentary, actually, and although it's not been brought up here, but there are two giants of sports broadcasting passed away recently. John Motson, who was a football commentator um, for, for many, many years, decades, actually, uh, was the BBC's main voice of football. Um, and Dickie Davis, who was a sports presenter for ITV and indeed presented for many years the snooker on ITV. Um, consummate professional. Uh, if you listen to Hazel Irvin being interviewed on, talk, on the Talking Snooker podcast, she mentioned working with Dickie Davis at the Seoul Olympics in 1988, a big break on network television for ITV, and said what a charming and helpful person he was. 
very uh, sort of debonair character, a bit like Des Lyman on, on BBC One, really, just sort of very likable, unflappable, and uh, you know, a good host for snooker in those days. And uh, John Motson, I think <sighs> there's something about voices of sport that are um, resonant, and it's because, of course, we remember the great moments, the great World Cup matches, the, the disappointments. If you're a sports fan, you, you they're in your sort of DNA, and, and the voices of those moments stay with you. We still talk about Jack Carnham. Um, good luck, mate, with the Cliff Thorburn maximum. That was 40 years ago now. Um, and there's, there's other examples in snooker. But for many years, and things have changed because it's multi-channel now, but when it was just BBC and ITV, you basically had three essential voices of football. John Motson, Barry Davis, and Brian Moore. Martin Tyler as well. Uh, who, of course, is still going on Sky. But they were the main voices. Now, of course, there's so much football, you know, you, it's harder to identify with one commentator, and that's probably true with any sport. The other thing about sports commentary, for many years, it was the only place on, on British television you heard regional accents, um, other than in sitcoms, where they were often played for laughs. But actually, you're more likely to hear a regional accent for, for, in those days in a sporting context than certainly in, in other forms of television. Uh, it's changed now, and it's changed for the better, I think, on that score. But anyway, they were they were great uh, figures in broadcasting and in sport. And as I say, that they, they are they. When you think of, for example, the the eighty eight FA Cup final where Wimbledon beat Liverpool, John Motson said, "The crazy gang have beaten the Culture Club." Great line. But also, many of us will remember where we were when we watched that, who we were watching it with where those people are now, you know, how much we miss them maybe, you know, all these things kind of, it's part of our lives and, and, the, and the soundtrack to our lives, if you're a sports fan, is often informed by the commentator and it is different now, I think, as I say, because of so many voices, it's harder to identify with one, but uh, anyway, I wanted to mention them. Sam Kelly says, uh, in your latest podcast, you said the next one will be a bumper one. Yes, well, this is, this, this is the one you're listening to, Sam. So I thought I'd ask a few questions to add to its size. Here goes in no particular order. The 900, back in September, I thoroughly enjoyed it once I'd found it tucked away around midnight on Sporty Stuff TV. No, me neither. That's his words. Uh, the excellent Rachel Casey and Neil Folds, plus the guy with the shirts, that's Lee Richardson, by the way, not to mention the quality of many of the matches, made it a very enjoyable watch. But I must say, the tinny sound quality during play, with echoes and noises off, rather let it down. Two matters arising. How can amateur players receive prize money still be amateurs? Apologies if that's a silly question, but get used to them because there's at least one more coming up. Well, we'll answer that first. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea of the sporting amateur, I think, is, is sort of almost redundant now. Um, you know, the, 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 the plucky amateur playing only for, you know, the, the noble sort of nobleness of the sport, that's all gone. The fact is, it's prize money, and I think they deserve the prize, which is 10 grand the winner, um, and, you know, thoroughly deserved. Um, Sam's second question, what... What a good idea for TV, having red spots on the cue ball so that we can see the way it spins. Why don't the WPBSA or would it be World Snooker Tour make that standard in all televised tournaments? You said more than once that the answer to any question is usually money, but th that's not the case here. Is it more likely the answer is simply conservatism? We don't do that full stop. Seeing, say, the way the cue ball spins on two different axes sim simultaneously following a, re a reverse side screwback or scrambles for grip in a slow-mo replay of a Murphy or Trump special would be very interesting. Would a spotted cue ball distract the player, though, or would they soon get used to it? I can't think of a downside, can you? 
Well, I, I do wonder if this is Sean Murphy wearing a beard here, because this is Sean's big idea. He's been saying this for a number of years, that we should have a spotted cue ball like they're using pool, and you can see all the spin and all the, all the stuff you've mentioned. Um, it's one of those things, maybe you'd have to ask more players, would, they, would, would it distract them, you know, would they find it a bit off-putting? I've got no great um, opinion either way, to be honest. I, I don't really think it would enhance things that much. Equally, I don't think that the sky would fall in either if it was introduced. Sam says, moving on, and I must say, the feeling I have as I ask this is what I remember from school more than half a century ago when I didn't understand something that the rest of the class seemed to accept as common knowledge. So I had to pluck up the courage to ask the teacher. Why are some tournaments non-ranking, especially the Masters? There, I've asked. The nearest I've come to understanding is that as only the top 16 are involved, it would be somehow unfair on those ranked below. It seems to me all those 16 are doing is it worth swapping positions with each other? So how would that affect the other ranks? And why would they care? And what does it matter anyway whether an event is ranking or not? They still get the money. I know, I know, these are stupid questions, but I've raised my hand in class now, so would you please mind breathing a patient sigh and explaining it to the slow boy at the back? Not stupid at all. It's um, it's a perfectly reasonable question. Um, well, you've identified the answer. It is because there's only 16 players in it. And OK, they'd be swapping places with each other, but they'd also be gaining a lot of ground on the players not in it. Now, there's an argument to say everyone can qualify for the Masters, so maybe it should be a ranking event. But it's not quite true, because the, the ITV Players Series are based on the one-year ranking list. Everyone starts from zero at the start of the season. Obviously, there are players coming on in their first year who are going to find it very hard to qualify for the Masters when they haven't got any points yet, whereas a lot of other players are coming in with one season's points. So, But here's the thing, OK, you say, and it's a good question, what does it matter anyway? Well, I don't think it does to most people. You know, the Masters is packed out every session with, with the audience there, the spectators. They don't care whether it's a ranking event or not. Most people don't care, really. Um, so keep it as it is would be my suggestion. Sam continues, next I've been thinking about the occasional correspondence you've had about repositioning balls following a foul and a miss. Two suggestions for what they're worth. Number one, just accept it's quite possible that the upcoming stroke will be a miss, so put a small chalk mark alongside the cue ball to mark its position. Again, why not? Again is the answer, we don't do that full stop. I think about that, Sam, if you, if you did that before the shot was played, you're basically saying to the player, you're going to miss this, which is not the biggest confidence boost as you get down to play the shot. Um, now, there are people who suggest maybe uh, you know you could you could mark mark the, the cloth in some way. Um, I, I I do feel that it's clearly at the moment. I mean, Brendan Moore he did a thing the other the, last week. Um, I think the guy played the shot, didn't hit it, but did hit the pink, and he immediately put his finger where the pink was, waiting for the player to say the other player to say put them back so that he knew without having to mess around with the screen and all that you know where it was because obviously certain balls move you know you can always think about the cue ball but certain balls move cue ball I said there by the way not white you can think about the cue ball but certain balls move that you're not expecting as a referee to move so you're not necessarily paying attention to where they are um, Sam's second question whatever happened to the virtual table the BBC used to show in coverage the picture would switch from the usual overhead to an exact replica, showing the position of each ball and then moving around to show a player's eye view, which balls were snooping, which, etc. It looked very accurate and presumably used Wimbledon Hawkeye technology. If Hawkeye can play as a flexible, fast-moving tennis ball to within a hair's breadth, then surely a stationary, rigid snooker ball could re be replaced bang on every time. 
Yeah, it was Hawkeye, and, and it, it was um, used for a while, and it went away, and I suspect money, I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing money is involved with that. I think we can all agree that it ain't quite good enough at the moment. It looks a bit daft with all the to-me-to-you, Chuckle Brother stuff, thumbs and, and you know, move it a bit to you and move it a bit that way. It looks daft. Things need to move on and a better solution needs to be found. I think most people agree with that. What the exact solution is, though, is the source of discussion, clearly. Sam continues, he's not finished yet, he continues, Next on my list is the great Ronnie O'Sullivan. Why is he so popular? Yes, he's the best ever. Yes, it's an event every time he enters the arena. And yes, they'll be showing replays of his wizardry in a hundred years' time. But I still wonder why the majority of the audience always seem to be on his side. I'm old enough to remember Reardon, Davis and Hendry in their pomp, and the usual attitude of the audience was, no offence, but you're so much better than all your opponents that today we're going to root for the other guy. It's not as though Ronnie has the crowd-pleasing, cheeky, chappy persona of Alex Higgins, or when younger Jimmy White, so it can't be that. And he seems to have the rather unbecoming knack of making it all about himself. Trump scores a 147, Ronnie doesn't shake his hand, we're all talking about Ronnie, not Judd. Ronnie gets thrashed 5-0 by an outsider, Ronnie bites his tip off on camera, so the talk is all about him again, rather than that a champing fate. Basically, he doesn't seem to be a particularly likeable character. Fair enough, that's not his job, but it does leave me wondering why so many cheer for him. Perhaps I should ask them, not you. <laughs> well... I think he's popular because of the way he plays. You know, it's, uh, if if you like watching snooker, then it's quite likely you, you enjoy watching Ronnie O'Sullivan. I think the other the players you mentioned there, the Reardon, Davis, Hendries, you know, they seem to be people really without flaws. And I think people warm to Ronnie because he clearly does have flaws and he wears them quite openly. And people, I think, like, you know, emotional people and, and, and people that don't seem robotic and, and that seem real and human, and he's certainly that. Um... And I will say this about him as well. There's something just very charismatic about him, sort of naturally. I think if Ronnie O'Sullivan, if he didn't know he was a snooker player and he sort of walked into a cafe and ordered a coffee, people would sort of be attracted to him. They would sort of, you know, turn towards him and sort of... There'd be something about him that would interest them. What that is exactly, I don't know. But there's definitely... There's definitely something about him. And... You know, obviously snooker fans, you have the added element of being really good at snooker. Um, it, it, it's true, it's not, it doesn't sort of interact with the crowd as such, but then again, who does really, you know? Um, it's not, not something that really many players do, I don't think. Um, I think Ronnie is actually quite shy in a, in a lot of ways and doesn't, the attention that you say he wants, it's a double-edged sword. I think he does at times enjoy the attention, but at other times he definitely doesn't. He doesn't enjoy walking into a venue and everyone wanting a piece of him. Um, now you may say, well, that's part of the, the job, but you know, when you've had it for 30 years, I'd imagine it's quite wearing. Um, but uh, anyway, everyone would have their own view on that, but I think you know people like him because he's just really good. <laughs> but also human, I think that's definitely important as well. Finally, this won't go away. You were kind of... This is still Sam, by the way. Still still going. Uh, finally, this won't go away. You were kind enough to read out my email some months ago when I was asking what happens to modern chalk. But if I may say so, no satisfactory, no satisfactory answer emerged. The question continues to intrigue me. The chalk doesn't come off on the cue ball, hence far fewer kicks, or on the table, no marks on the base, but the players still constantly apply it to the tip, if anything more assiduously than ever before. So where does it go? A well-known brandy's triangle... And I thought of the Bermuda joke, but it had disappeared. Well, I guess when you chalk your tip, you know, and you then play your shot, 
some of that chalk is going to just naturally disappear into the atmosphere, isn't it? Um, you know, sometimes, as you say, it lands on the cue ball, sometimes on the bays. But, it, you know, if, if, you, if, if we had a, a microscopic camera, I think we would see the sort of fragments of it, you know, sort of disappearing into the, into the general ether. He's not done yet, by the way. He says, finally, finally, let me just say Fergal O'Brien, because I like to keep traditions alive, and then just say how much I enjoy the podcast and your commentary on Eurosport. I'm still chuckling about Ross Muir's nickname, Stenhouse. <laughs> keep up the good work, and goodbye, bye. Well, thank you, Sam, for getting in contact with those points. I'm going to take a refreshing beverage. I could, I could pause this, but, you know, it's... Uh, yes, I'll just take this drink. Ah... We continue. Nick Evans, I'm a long-time listener but first-time writer from North Wales. I very, very much enjoy the podcast, particularly through lockdown, and also appreciate your commentary when I get to hear it. Thank you, Nick. I only hear commentary relatively rarely, so typically watch on a tablet phone while keeping half an eye on the latest crime drama we have on the go. I've only been once... Uh, by the way, the, the gold on, on the BBC is excellent. You want to watch a crime drama about the Brinks map robbery? Uh, yeah, just, that's just an aside. I'm not, I'm not associated with that drama, but I've been watching it this week. Anyway, only been once to a match in person. I'm lucky to have seen Ronnie V. Neil Robertson at the Clandidno Tour Championship in 2019. I really want to get to another. I was sorry to miss the recent Welsh Open due to family commitments. So, Shredsville, what a deeply strange term. I think I've heard you say it once or twice. Google thinks it was coined, first coined by Jimmy White in 2016 or earlier. Can I just say it's so niche that I'm really not in favour? I did think that it was in snooker only, but there seems to have been a very occasional NFL usage. Can I ask for your comments on the word? Well, yes, this was from Jimmy White, Shredsville. It's just one of his terms. Someone's in shreds, um, so he's termed it Shredsville. I think I think it's quite funny, and I think it's um, it, it's interesting how it's sort of taken on life its own. People, it's a, it's actually used quite commonly now on Eurosport because everyone understands what it is. It's when players get nervous and they can't pot a ball, and there's lots of mistakes. I guess there's little anxiety comes on. Uh, they start to sort of just, you know, not be able to do what they can normally do because of nerves. So that's essentially it. And I, I like, uh, I quite like it. It's become Jimmy's thing. And, and yeah, I've used it because, because it sort of entered the lexicon, if you will. Danny Kyle writes, it was confirmed this week that as a result of the merger between BT and Warner Brothers Discovery, the BT sports channels will be rebranded as TNT Sports and will be added to Discovery Plus. Additionally, it was suggested that the Eurosport brand will be retired by 2026, also to be known as TNT Sports. The obvious worry for UK-based snooker fans is how much it's going to cost to subscribe to Discovery Plus once it has the BT Sport channels in it. It currently costs £6.99 a month or £59.99 a year for the entertainment and sports subscription. BT Sport's online subscription service costs £29.99 a month or £360 a year with BT Sport recently agreeing to pay £320 million per year for the Premier League football and another £400 million per year for the Champions League, I doubt they're going to want to give those channels away for the current 6 99 a month Discovery Plus package. Clearly the solution would be to have a two-tier Discovery Plus with customers paying to purchase an optional extra to add the XBT Sport channels if desired. If fans of the smaller sports like snooker and cycling are going to be forced to pay for Premier League football, it's going to drive a lot of fans away. Uh, on a separate note, to answer your correspondence question from a few weeks ago on the White Fan Commentary Radios, I believe they are advertised to work during all events in the 2023 season, but will not work in following years. Until this year, the radios did seem to work across multiple events and years, although they were not advertised as such. 
Having one radio per year probably seems acceptable if you attend multiple sessions at a different event each season, but seems like a retrograde step for the occasional fan who might only attend one session per year and needs a new radio every time. Well, thank you, Nick. Uh, not Nick, Danny is your name, <laughs> Danny Carl. Um, I, yes, I don't know the, the ins and outs of what's going to happen with the, all those channels you mentioned. Um, I think you can get uh, Discovery Plus now through Sky. Uh, Sky Glass, is it? Or Sky Q? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't have these things myself. But um, I think you can get it through there. We'll see. I'd imagine what you say is probably right. There'll probably be some sort of you know subscription channel with the football and then other sports available in different ways. Ultimately, though... In about five years' time, it'll all be mainly streaming, I think. It'll, if you want to watch something, it will be streamed. There may still be linear channels, but the main way of watching it will be streaming. And, of course, you can watch that on your TV. Um, so, you know, I, I actually think that's quite a good thing. Just the fact it's available, you know, it's, it's got to be a good thing. Sat Jinder, I hope you're well, and thanks for your legendary or inspiring podcast. I'll make the old joke about, have you said that to the wrong person? And we'll move on. Why do you think there's not been a good video game? I'll start again. Why do you think there has not been a video game good enough to showcase the brilliance of snooker? There have been a few pretenders like Jimmy White's Whirlwind Snooker and the official World Snooker game, but nothing that can do what EA Sports FIFA has done. Maybe the new wave of virtual reality headsets could herald in a game changer. Excuse the pun. Maybe for added realism, they could have referees telling off the crowd for phones ringing or a virtual reality Hazel Irvin, which would certainly make me purchase whatever the headset would, would cost. Well, I'll say on that, Satchinder, is I was... Uh, Myself and Neil Folds uh, did the commentary for the World Snooker Snooker 19 game, and uh, we we spent a few days in Barnsley, voicing sort of fake commentary. Um, and uh, yes, I mean I, I'm not a video gamer, so I can't really comment on any of that. But um, anyway, we're on that. If anyone's interested, Daniel writes during the recent World Grand Prix, ITV One afternoon showed Steve Davis his first TV 147. His opponent, John Spencer, had previously been denied a place in the record books because the pockets for his 147 were of incorrect size. My questions, therefore, are when it comes to pocket templates, is it one size for all, or is there a margin of error? Are the pockets still rechecked after every match before it's officially ratified? Without wishing to ruin one of the most special moments of the season, but if they are checked, how was Marco Fu's 147 in Hong Kong ratified with pockets that were at best on the generous side? Anyway, all this came to mind watching the Grand Prix, where in contrast to what we've seen in recent seasons, the pockets seem properly tight. Great to see and hopefully reflects the policy for tournaments going forward. We don't all necessarily just want to be watching century after century. <clears throat> well, the, the template is standardised. Um, I think that there are... It only has to be slightly slightly different for it to look very different on TV. And I think one of the issues is that the table fitters... It's not the same person putting every table up. So, you know, there may be just slight variances in how people work that may account for the, the fact that some tables look easier than others. In general, I mean, I was actually in the arena last week looking at the pockets specifically. They are tight. I tell you, when you're up close, <laughs> they're pretty brutal. But of course, the conditions are really lovely as well. The cloth, you know, is very fast and, and, and you know, it's a, just a, a beautiful uh, uh, table they were using last week. Um but Sean Murphy, you know, made all those centuries, not because the table was easy, it's because he's brilliant. That's, that's why he made them. Uh, the Hong Kong table, it did look big. Uh, the pockets did look big. But the, the, the pockets are ratified in advance. They wouldn't check them after a maximum. They'd be ratified in advance. Um, and they are checked, um, you know, properly beforehand. 
I'll say this, and you know, we've talked about conspiracy theories before. There's been no conspiracy to open up the pocket so there's more breaks or anything like that. That's just nonsense. Just complete nonsense. Um, but there, it is true that certain tables seem to play differently to one another. And I do think that must be because different people put them up. And you only need a slight variance in how they do it. There will be, you know, a minuscule variance in, in how the po- how the table is constructed, I think would account for Potentially the pockets just playing a little bit differently. Um, we'll move on. Ian Hall in Bromsgrove. Thanks for producing these podcasts. They're such a fantastic insight into the world of snooker. Do you know if there's a cap on prize money that can be awarded for a ranking tournament? E.g. if someone hypothetically wanted to put on a tournament where the winner received £5 million, would this not be allowed as it would distort the rankings and might overshadow the World Championship? Even if it was a non-ranking tournament, would it be allowed because it still might overshadow the World Championship? I think it would be permitted as World Snooker Tour would like the money and also they wouldn't want a breakaway tour. But I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, when the Saudi Arabian tournament was announced, the prize money was huge for that. But I think it was agreed that it couldn't be so huge that it was more than the World Championship. The World Championship has to be worth the most. I think if someone came along and offered £5 million, what World Snooker Tour would do would ask them to sponsor more than one tournament, I guess. Um, let's have a series of them and spread that money over you know, three or four tournaments, maybe. Um, but essentially, what you're saying is, is correct. The, the World Championship prize money has to be the most, because if it wasn't, it wouldn't be regarded as the biggest tournament, I guess. I mean, it would be, but in the public mind, but maybe the players would start to... You know, target tournaments that were that were worth more, um, but essentially, yes, that's it. I think if if World Snooker Tour were in the enviable position of um, being offered that amount of money, they would ask they would ask for it to be spread spread out over a, a series of events. Jonathan Ford is next. Hope you've managed to catch your breath after your podcast break last week. Great to have you back. Thank you, Jonathan. I was listening to you on a recent edition when you countered Steve McGuire's claim that the game is dying. I agree with you that this is nonsense. We enjoy a very high standard of play in the sport, with regularly compelling and entertaining matches, excellent sportsmanship, notwithstanding the Chinese match-fixing scandal, well-presented players who are media-friendly in a sport that remains ideally suited to television broadcasting. The product is excellent. So why has the circuit stagnated in recent months? We know the issue with the pandemic and the situation in China remains, but is it simply that we don't have the right people at WST to commercially drive the game forward any longer? Have they run out of steam? The efforts to get things back on track in June 2020 after the first COVID lockdown were amazing, but what's the future strategy? I simply don't see one. How long before a bid from China or Saudi Arabia, for example, is made to buy the commercial rights and takes the, take the game to the next level? Thanks and keep up the great work. Thank you, uh, Jonathan. Well, um, yeah, I, I mentioned, I think, on the last podcast, there is a new commercial team in place, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe some new thinking is needed. What, the, what is the future strategy? I don't know. It seems it's been for the last couple of years to just hope we can go back to China. Um, I have to say that is not sustainable. We either go back or we don't. And if we don't, clearly we need a plan B. And that's really the issue at the moment. There doesn't seem to be one. Whenever you speak to kind of high-ups, well, Snooker Tour and WP would say, they're always telling you that they're talking to this person and that person and we're excited to be going here, excited to be going there. I remember last year one, one of these guys told me that there'd be two tournaments in Turkey this season. Well, there isn't even one. So, <laughs> you know, just saying we're going to go places is not the same as going there. Um, I mean, you know, there's a story that, you know, the Indian Open would be back next season. Well, let's see if it is or not because it hasn't been held for four years. Matt Selby's still... Defending that title he won in 2019. 
Um, in terms of whether there would be a bid from overseas, well, I don't know about that. It's happened in other sports. Obviously, even golf is kind of riven with splits with this live Saudi Arabia thing. I, I mean, listen, if that ever happened in snooker, it would elevate things in terms of the money involved. It would also rip the soul out of the sport. You know, the crucible would go, everything that we kind of know now would go. Some people would say it's a good thing that we should reinvent ourselves. Um, some people, I think, would, would say the exact opposite. We'll see. There's no, no sign of that happening. Um, but I think the, the new people do have to be given time. Um, you know, it's, I've heard good things so far, but let's wait for results because that's all you can judge them on. And that's going to take time. Uh, next season will be interesting, you know, what, what exactly is on the calendar. I think people would like to see some new events, but, uh, you know, they don't just fall from the sky, do they? David Friedel writes, he says, as they used to say in my youth, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. To begin, I'd like to add my name to the very long list of listeners who have expressed their sincere appreciation for all you've done for the sport of snooker during your impressively durable career, and also my sincere admiration for your unique blend of self-deprecating wit, your knowledge of the game, and your engaging personality. This is all very nice, David. Thank you. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, he says, the balance of this maiden message is in two parts. I'll start narrow, in part to establish a bit of snooker street cred, and then widen out. Early this point, Sean Murphy, early this week, Sean Murphy stirred the pot with his lazy journalism remark. I take his main point at face value. While there are many factors that may explain a missed shot, he sincerely believes lack of concentration isn't amongst them. Yet days later, I was struck at another pundit's reaction. I believe it was Ken Doherty, when a player frequently breaks down after runs of 40 to 50. What other explanation could there be? Presumably the mix of challenges to which Sean was alluding are pretty consistent from shot to shot. So what else is going on? I'd be interested on your views on this topic, though frankly I'd be more interested in the views of other players. Well, we don't have other players on here, so you've only got me, but uh, (laughs) I think I did discuss this the other day. Um, There's a a number of reasons, partly nerves, I think concentration is one of them, and sometimes shots are just tough, you know, it's like (laughs) the deeper you go into a break, you know, you're probably going to be faced with um, you know, a couple of shots that are just not as easy as, as some of the others. Um, it's a difficult game. People are going to miss. That's, that's basically it, I think. Uh, David continues, before returning to broader topics, I'd also like to put in a good word for Zhao Gudong. I just watched him steal the first frame off Stephen Maguire in the latest Championship League match. Got himself into trouble with a very attacking safety, putting two red into play and allowing Stephen to race ahead 49-0. But when he got back to the table, he continued with very bold shot choices, first bringing three awkward reds off a cushion from a red, and then knocking in a cracking red from distance to pinch the frame. And what about the terrific punditry of Dominic Dale? Nearly every time he's near a mic, I find myself smiling and fishing for my dictionary. Well, the good news there, David, is that, uh, well, for you anyway, is that um, Dominic and myself are going to be commentating on the WST Classic. Oh, yes, we are. The new tournament that's replaced the Turkish Masters. I'm not quite sure what platform this is on yet. It may be Matchroom Live. I'm not absolutely sure. That'll be advertised in the future. But Dominic and myself are going to be commentating on that. So you'll hear plenty of Dominic. And I agree, he's a terrific commentator. Um, More information to come. Now then. Now to broader topics, David said. Starting with a word or two about my journey to snooker fandom. As I believe this provides some context regarding the substantive remarks I'll get to shortly. (laughs) It's very formal. I quite like that. He said, I learned about snooker five or six years ago while poking around on YouTube. For some happy reason, their algorithm suggested some clips of Ronnie O'Sullivan. I had no idea what I was seeing, but it was clearly captivating. I've been hooked ever since. Like many others, I discovered your delightful podcast during lockdown 
and have steadily managed to work through most of the back editions. One of the bit of background may be noteworthy. Thus far, the only way I've seen snooker has been on YouTube, meaning it's all been after the match is over. This also means that I frequently know the outcome before I start watching, since the result is often included in the clip's thumbnail description. That match between Zhao and Steven, I saw it posted on YouTube just 17 minutes after it wrapped. I've tried a few times to crack the code of Matchroom Live, so far with limited success. Unlike some recent listeners who prefer the simplicity of watching the game unfold without a voice in their ear, I definitely enjoy matches more with the insight and humour of live commentary. As an aside, how about this for an idea for future podcasts? Ask listeners to share their experiences watching on YouTube. There's a broad and eclectic assortment of folks who post content with various, varying amounts of editing and their own commentary. Perhaps it will surprise you to know that many of them don't speak English. You might get, guess there's a handful from China and Thai, giving the growing pool of talent, Thailand, giving the growing pool of talent from those countries. But you'll also hear Russian and German as well as a smattering of other languages I can't quite identify. Might this be a way to smoke out hidden pockets of snooker fans in unexpected places? What if we ran towards the idea and asked some of those posters to come on your show? How they got into such a niche activity, whether they've ever played, how many subscribers they have, whether they've managed to hit YouTube's pay thresholds, etc. The topic which, you see, you get into the main point now. The topic which actually made me decide to finally send this note concerned your discussion of Jack Nazowski's relationship with Peter Ebden, and more specifically, Ebden's controversial views around vaccinations, links to autism, etc., I was struck by how clearly you were able to express your own opinions without being disrespectful or inflammatory. This is another of your valuable and frankly admirable traits. You have that ability to disagree without being disagreeable. You present the other guy's view in a balanced way and then calmly explain why you see things differently. Many of us could stand some improvement in this fine art and we could certainly do worse than listening to your weekly lessons. They're lessons now, you see. I quite like that. Anyway... As it happens, I agree with the father whose email you read. I find Ebden's attitudes ignorant and counterproductive, but I can separate those beliefs from his professional role. Turning against Jack Lazowski or boycotting the sport seem like overreactions to me. I prefer your example. Explain why you disagree rather than cancelling the whole person. The folks who choose the cancel route may well feel very virtuous and they may garner lots of virtual accolades, but only among people who actually agreed with them. In my view, this bellicose cancel culture is not an effective way to actually change behaviour at scale, so I'll continue to root for Jack while also expressing my views on the issues that arise off the field. This reminds me of another reaction I had to one of your earlier podcasts. You were addressing the familiar topic of how to combat the decline in snooker's popularity and generate interest in today's youth. You mentioned a then-recent bit with Judd Trump and some well-known social media star or influencer. I think that was Chris Hughes, actually, because he's Judd's friend and he has two million Instagram followers and half a million Twitter followers. Uh, he says, I agree this would be a more impactful way to reach that target audience than watching a bunch of middle-aged or older white men telling stories about the shenanigans of their youth. And I also appreciate Stephen Hendry's efforts with his Q-Tips channel. Here's another idea. What about getting players to tell us the stories behind their tattoos? Snooker viewers are more likely to know about some players' body art than others. Mark Williams springs immediately to mind for reasons I didn't don't need to explain to your audience. But until today, I didn't realise Stephen Maguire has also had extensive work done. I hesitate to offer opinions about what the youth of today would or would not find intriguing, but I have to believe that hearing personal stories would make the pros more relatable to viewers of every age. This plan is not free from risk, however. As you noted with the listeners' reaction to Peter Ebden's views, some fans might like, not like what they hear. But the goal here shouldn't be to avoid offending even one current or potential fan. I'd like to believe that the net impact of this conversation will increase Snooker's fan base and may create some traction with folks under 30. That's as good a place as any to pause. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Well, thank you. <coughs> thank you, David. Um, 
for writing that uh, lengthy email. Yeah, I mean, I've said before that we need to do more to promote the players as people, not just potters. Um, I think Will Snooker Tour still kind of don't get that. Um, we don't see, we don't know enough about the guys. I mean, tattoos. That's one thing you you've brought up. Steve, uh, Stuart Bingham has got an extraordinary tattoo on his back. Um, basically, of all the events he's won, there's like the World Championship trophy, but he's got sort of icons from each place he's won. So there's like a monkey from Gibraltar. There's a koala from Australia. There's um, I don't I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure what else he's got on there, but there's pictures of it. I mean that that would be an extraordinary uh, feature to go through that. But but I'm not saying just that, but lots of different things, lifestyle things you could do. You need the players to cooperate, and that's not always um, as straightforward as it might seem. But in general, you know, more could be done certainly to sell the players as people rather than just standing by an advertising board or standing by a snooker table talking about snooker. There's too much of that. You need some of it, obviously, but there's too much of that. There's a lot of players who, who you know, I'm sure have interesting things to say about how they spend their social time that would be relatable and, and you know, maybe, so say, a player enjoys, I don't know, uh, show jumping of a weekend. I can't think of any that applies to, by the way. But let's let's say, theoretically, a player, in fact, in fact on Saturdays goes show jumping. You know, if you're a show ju- if you're interested in show jumping, that might be a way into being interested in snooker. It's a bad example, I know that. Um, but uh, but you know what I'm saying. There's, there's there's things that players could talk about in regards to themselves that is not just related to snooker. I've been saying this for a long time, and I keep saying it until. Something actually changes. I agree with what you say about Hendry's, Stephen Hendry's uh, channel. He's got the mix absolutely right. It's snooker focused, but it's not just that. He gets other people on there, and it's good fun. And he's he's sort of got the the right mix, I think. Now we continue with Tim Forty. He says, uh, as an avid listener to your podcast, there's a mention on a couple of episodes the amount of people who have fallen back in love with snooker, particularly those from the 80s, 90s, who for some reason stopped playing or watching the sport. It got me thinking about my own situation and why I returned to the bays in my later years. I guess at the time, like most, more, more alluring social sports, such as lady chasing and football, took precedent right through into my 30s. But there comes a time when you realise this isn't, just isn't sustainable. Simply, I got less interested in my career and less capable of running round chasing ladies and footballs. And like a biblical sign, snooker presented itself to me. For me, snooker offers another chance for my inner sportsman, another focus as the sport has a longer shelf life for those who still want to compete at a reasonable level or for just social interaction. Snooker can satisfy the creative, mental and competitive side that older lovers of sport can no longer take from stepping on a field. I have fond memories of watching snooker back in the day with my dad and grandma, but I've never played. So when it presented itself to me around five years ago, I took up the sport because it resonated with me. Memories are a powerful thing that we draw on and share all the time. Going back to our childhood school to relive a moment, going back to family and to show our own kids where we played in the streets, birthdays, Christmases, anniversaries, deaths, memories play a huge part in all of our lives. Simply, if Snooker can continue to make great memories, great events, great experiences, it will always have a future with the young and old. How big it gets is up to the Snooker, and people in the driving seats. People like yourself have already created great moments for the young and old as well. That's helping to continue it. Keep it going. On this topic of returning, will you be attending the Tour Championships in Hull? If you are, and by some chance I bump into you at the Bonus Arena, or in a pub, I'd love a photo of that's okay. I'll be returned to Hull all the way from Melbourne, Australia. 
I'll be flying to Manchester on the 1st of April and travelling to Hull the next morning to catch the afternoon session. I'm so excited. I'm actually from Hull originally and will be visiting family after a long time of not being able to travel due to Covid. I moved to Australia over 20 years ago. This will be my first live professional snooker event. Hopefully my flights are not delayed. It will be great to collect another great memory in the form of a photo. Well, Tim, uh, certainly uh, I, I will be there and uh, do uh, do uh, do uh, let me know when you're there. And it's great that you're making, uh, you say you're visiting family, but you're making uh, some trip there to uh, to watch your first snooker. Um, and it's a great tournament. It's a terrific tournament. One match a day. Um, they say the, the Masters every match is like a final. It's not really true, is it? Because they're all best of 11. But these are, because these are best of 19 from the start. There's only eight players. And uh, it's uh, maybe not the field everyone would have expected at the start of the season. But they're all, of course, the form players of this season. So it's going to be very interesting. So I hope you enjoy that and hope to see you there. I think our last email is from David Burney in Canada. He says, news from across the pond. Albert Kenny has won the BC Open Snooker Championship with a whitewash win over last year's champions champion Max Guan. He was looking to be a great final as Albert Kenny was the 2022 Alberta Open champion and Max was the 2022 BC Open champion. However, that wasn't the case as Kenny won 4-0 to raise the trophy high in the air. Kenny almost didn't make it as he was up against it in the semi-final against Charlie Brown. Brown was leading 2-1 in a best of five. Kenny cleared up the colours to force a black ball respot and sunk the black to force a decider and he didn't squander his chance to take the match in the decider. As well, we had a three-way play-off in the round-robin stage with a blue off its spot into the corner pocket to settle these matters. Oh, what drama, and all enjoyed the tournament thoroughly. In addition, Albert Kenny made me blush a little, as he said in a post-match interview that he's played in a lot of tournaments in his day, and this was the most professionally run tournament he'd ever played in. Thank you, Albert, for your kind words. You're a great champion. Thanks to all the players that turned out and gave it their all. As well, as well thank you to the fans who watched in person and the numerous fans around the world that tuned into the broadcast. Thank you for mentioning it on your podcast so snooker enthusiasts can see what is happening in the game of snooker in different parts of the world. The Seattle Snooker Open will be next on the list for us out here in the Pacific West. It runs from March the 18th to 20th at Ox Billiards. It will be streamed on all of Ox Billiards' social platforms, Facebook, YouTube and Twitch TV. This question might be long overdue, but where did you get that wonderful shirt you were wearing when you did the walk and talk with Sam through the park a few months ago. Well, now we're getting to the real stuff. You've, 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 you've uh, very kindly told us what's happening in America. Uh, this, uh, I, I did, yes, I did the, this was Sam from World Snooker. We did a little walk and talk in Leicester. And I, I had to look up what shirt I was actually wearing. Um, it's got a sort of snooker player on it. It's a snooker image. Um, I can't remember, actually. I must have got it online somewhere. It's not in your local Next or something, but... Um, I think I must have got it online, uh, but yes, thank you for thank you for noticing. No one else did, uh, but anyway, uh, it's still there on YouTube uh, if you want to watch it. Keep up the great work, says David. Hope to catch up a little more at this year's World Championship. Do you need any more maple syrup? And still haven't seen any more Jeopardy snooker questions. Well, here's the thing about the maple syrup because it was Pancake Day here, Shrove Tuesday, but I was at a tournament where it was not a sort of. Uh, celebrated at all so that would have been an ideal moment for the syrup but there was no pancake uh, anyway David says I found out more information about Jack Palance and Lee Marvin's adventures in Q Sports well he leaves it there so that's that's a cliffhanger and it's our last email maybe next week we'll find out a bit more about that but th thank you everybody for emailing and it's been a long couple of episodes but that's it with this podcast is nothing without 
the audience. I mean, literally isn't. It's just me speaking to myself. So thank you for everybody who's got in contact. And I thought we can now say, now it's March, we can say definitively that the World Championship is next month. Okay, the World Championship is next month. So the question is, who's going to win it this year? Because it's been quite a sort of unorthodox, unpredictable season. A lot of, you know, top players, so-called top players, and, and indeed... <laughs> from the rankings, very much top players have not really performed as they would ex be expected to. A lot of other people have come through, people have come back to the winner's circle. The Crucible, the World Championship, though, has its own kind of ecosystem. It's a very it's very different from the rest of the year. The format is different, the whole the stakes are higher, the history, the the, the environment there, the intimate environment, the crucible. Who's gonna win it? That's what I'm asking the listenership. You don't have to send several pages, you can just literally just send a name. Who's going to win the World Championship? We'll read some of those out in a future episode. It'll be interesting to see who people are tipping. I suspect we'll see a lot of different names, and that's the thing these days. You know, it, it's 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 a lot of people have a claim to it. A lot of people, the way they played this year, you know, people will feel they're you know going there with a good chance. But who ultimately is going to win it? That's the question. You can email us snookersinpodcast.mail.com, snookersinpodcast.mail.com. That's about that, or anything else that you want to discuss. But that's it. Thank you for listening to the, the, both parts of the bumper episode. If I didn't read your email out, nothing personal. It's more than likely I've just missed it uh, because of incompetence. <laughs> but uh, but on that bombshell, we will sign off and we'll be back next week. But as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over the limit by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.